Hey everyone, I'm Meg Teets and this is Sorta Awesome. Hello and welcome back, Awesomes. You are listening to the show that is all about helping you be smart, strong, and social. We're in your earbuds every single week with all the awesome that you need to know. And you can also find us over on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show or on Facebook in our Sorta Awesome Hangout group. This is episode 117 of the show. And how about we kick things off with a big old thank you to our listener supporters. Your $5 a month makes a big difference in keeping this show going. And so if Sorta Awesome, if our Awesomes of the Week, if our awesome community, if any of that has added to your life, we would love for you to consider joining our listener supporters by going to SortaAwesomeShow.com slash support. Now, all of you awesomes who do support the show have access to special episodes that are exclusively available for our awesome supporters. And we also have just created an exclusive Facebook group just for the supporters. So all of that is over at sortaawesomeshow.com slash support. So yes, this is episode 117, and today I'm joined by my brilliant co-host, Rebecca Hoffer of simplyrebecca.com. And today, we are digging way back into our own personal histories to talk about what it is that we used to do before there was ever such a thing as sorta awesome. We've both had some jobs that are, I mean, pretty normal, not really that unusual, but we also have a few tucked away on our resumes that are actually pretty fascinating. So from Starbucks to spectacular theater productions, we've done a little bit of everything. And actually, most of it doesn't have a dang thing to do with our college degrees. <laughs> does that sound accurate, Rebecca? Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah, it does. <laughs> so we are going to talk about all of that in just a bit. But first, let's start this show the way we always do with our Awesomes of the Week, that moment in the show when we get to share with you about the books, the TV shows, the podcast, the music, whatever it is that's making our life a little bit more awesome this week. And Rebecca, I can't wait to hear what you have for us. I am sharing with you an old episode of the podcast, This American Life. Ooh, yeah. Now, This, this American life. life is a classic, right? It it's is. It's like everybody's gateway drug into listening to podcasts, I feel like. So they are super well known. I'm sure that nearly everyone listening has heard of This American Life. But if you have not, they do more, how do you say, like narrative-based mm -hmm. podcasting. They tell yes. stories. And yes. they are the best. I mean, they are just fantastic at it. So mm -hmm, yes. I started listening to This American Life when I first got into podcasts. And then I have a confession. I have kind of let them drop to the wayside a little bit. I haven't listened in a while. But one of our sort of awesome alums, guest co-host Dana White from A Slob Comes Clean, she recommended this episode. It's called Switched at Birth. It actually is a really old one. It's number 360. They replayed it this past February. I went back and listened, and she was right. Dana was right. This episode is one of the most fascinating stories, true real-life stories, that I feel like I have ever heard. I listened to the entire thing completely captivated. The story is that in 1951, there were two little girls that were born at a hospital in Wisconsin in a small community, and they got switched at birth. 
Mm. Now, the crazy thing is, is that one of the mothers suspected and knew from the moment she came home from the hospital, but Ugh. did not say anything until 43 years later in Ugh. 1994. Oh my gosh, I feel like my hair is standing on end. I have chills. I just cannot imagine this scenario. Words fail me because I also, I mean, I listened to the whole thing and I still feel like, wait, I'm sorry, what happened? <laughs> How does this happen? Now, this is kind of back in the day when, you know, like blood tests and DNA. I mean, that wasn't like, I mean, this is 1951 that this happened, right? But I can't imagine walking through life for 43 years suspecting and possibly even strongly knowing that I had the wrong child and just continuing to live my life. So in 1993, the mother, Mrs. Miller, sends a letter, a letter to the two girls, her daughter that she raised and her actual biological daughter, and tells them in a letter, Meg, in a letter, oh guess gosh. what? This isn't actually, like, your life as you know it actually is not your life. Wow. I'm just blown away just trying to even think about all the dynamics here. It's crazy. And that's where This American Life does an amazing job acknowledging all of those dynamics because first they talk about of course so why didn't she say anything she originally suspected like right away because the baby that they brought home from the hospital was two pounds less than the birth weight of the baby that was born and she's like mm, this doesn't seem right and she said something to her husband and the husband was like let's not disgrace the doctor with this <gasps> oh my gosh oh it was a different time it was a different time it really was. It was. But oh, then it wow. goes into, so how does this work? Because they have one girl, Marty, who is very outgoing and very well liked by everybody and her peers all throughout school and everything. And then you have this other daughter, Sue, who is much more serious and reserved. And so you have all the intricate details that go into what makes a family. And you're talking about things like nature versus nurture. And how does this work when you have somebody who's part of your family, but yet they're so different just because biologically they're different? And then what does that mean when you introduce somebody who biologically is much more connected to you? And how does that change the dynamic and family members accepting each other? I can't do justice in explaining the scenario. It really is just worth a listen. It's absolutely riveting. It really, truly is. So again, when you're scrolling back through This American Life, you're going to be wanting to look for number 360. It's called Switched at Birth. They replayed it way back in February. I really, truly have been thinking about it ever since then, and it's definitely worth a listen. You know, I am the same as you in that This American Life, I mean, it is the gold standard of podcasting. Clearly, Ira Glass Amen. has vision for the storytelling. It's mostly narrative storytelling style podcast, but sometimes he'll do just like personal essays. It's fantastic. I'm like you in that sometimes it just gets shuffled to the end because I don't know. I just know it's going to be excellent. And somehow I just don't play on it as often as I used to. Another one that is a replay from the past that I've been enjoying, I'll just say really quickly, is 587, episode 587, The Perils of Intimacy. They just replayed this one, and it's also a good one for a relist, and I'll just leave it at that. Okay, thank you for that. This American Life, always good stuff. My awesome of the week this week, a little bit of preface. Rebecca, remember how on our last episode, we were talking about lies we've believed and 
I maintained that you should just like what you like. Don't believe the cultural lie that you have to apologize or be embarrassed for the things that you like. Just like what you like. Don't make apologies. Yes. I'm trying really hard to practice what I preach right now. (laughs) What are you going to drop on us? I know, because I want to apologize in advance, but I'm not going to, because I like this. It's my awesome of the week. It's a book. It is a book about witches and vampires and also demons. What? Oh, this sounds scary and terrible. No, it's not scary or terrible. Okay, so it's called A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness. Deborah Harkness herself, the author, is a professor of European history and of the history of science at the University of Southern California. So her professional life actually really inspired the backdrop for A Discovery of Witches. I mean, I don't know if she delves in the supernatural in her real life, but... But I have to say that the backdrop for this story is all very academic. In fact, the first big chunk of the writing takes place at the Bodleian Library at Oxford University, because our main character, our protagonist, is a witch, kind of a self-loathing witch in that she hates magic. She doesn't allow herself to use it. She is a very well-respected academian, a well-respected professor, and in her research, This is set in present day? In present day. Totally present day. Yes. In her research, she comes across a manuscript that was thought to be lost, like this secret manuscript that was thought to be lost centuries ago. She accidentally finds it in this library at Oxford, and that attracts the attention of a handsome and wealthy and very old vampire. Vampire, my friends. (laughs) Is this a romance? It is a romance. Yes. Okay. Well, I just warmed up to it a little bit more. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so our vampire's name is Matthew Claremont. He is also, Rebecca, a well-respected academian, a well-respected research professor. Are you trying to sell this as, like, highbrow? No, it's not. It's totally not highbrow. I want everybody to just take a step back because it is not highbrow. So there's this manuscript... Dr. Bishop accidentally kind of stumbles across it, hijinks ensue, and it does turn into a romance and there's creatures and supernatural good stuff. So A Discovery of Witches is the first book in a trilogy that I kept having people recommend to me, probably because I have a type, okay, when it comes to my reading and to my very specific interest. But mostly recently, I had asked in our sorta book nerds group on Facebook, one of our mini spinoff groups from the main hangout group, I asked if anyone could suggest to me, I was looking for a really specific kind of book. I wanted a cozy mystery that was also a romance. And so I got a ton of great suggestions. This one stood out to me because of the part about vampires. And I was doing a little research and reading on it on Goodreads. And I have to say, this is definitely a love it or hate it book. Like people either love, love, love it. I was with some friends last weekend and I told them I was reading this and they lost their complete minds over it because they were so excited that I was reading it and they can't wait for me to get through it so we can discuss. Other people, I've read lots of Goodreads that are like, I would give this zero stars if I could. (laughs) Wow, that's uh... Not a good recommendation. (laughs) If you are into, it's very long. It's like 800 pages. I don't know. It's super, super long. But if you're just like in the mood, there's something about fall. I just wanted something cozy, but that also had an element of mystery. I always love if there's a thread of romance in there. It's really hitting all of those notes for me. So I know on last week's episode, I was talking about escapism. Here I am with another escapism awesome of the week clearly i'm being my total enneagram type nine self trying to avoid (laughs) avoid stressful things and dark things right now by just tuning out with some great escapist fun fiction 
long fiction. So anyway, for all of you Discovery of Witches fans out there who are listening right now, maybe squealing a little bit, just know I am in. I haven't finished this one yet, but I am fully in with this book. You know, you have put up with a whole lot of Bachelor franchise talk from me. So (laughs) I can do this for you. I can sit here with an approving look on my face and smile and encourage you and say, yes, this is a good selection this week, Megan. (laughs) I just can't. I'm not even going to apologize, even though I'm blushing right now talking about it. I just really like it. It's fun. And what's the name of the book again? A Discovery of Witches by Deborah Harkness. So course we'll have links to this stuff in our show notes for this episode and you know that every single friday we love to hear your awesome of the week on our awesome of the week thread in the sort of awesome hangout group so come on over to facebook and find us there you can find it by just searching on facebook for sort of awesome hangout well All of you awesomes who are listening mostly know us, the Sorta Awesome team, as the people you hang out with every Friday. And you may particularly know Rebecca and myself as the girlfriends who are prone to confessing way too many of our secrets to you. (laughs) Why do we always do that? I don't don't know. know. There's too much. I say too much. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so as interesting as our current job and our current roles on Sorta Awesome may be, you know, in terms of podcast creation, podcast production, That's our current work. But both of us, Rebecca and I, have done lots of other kinds of work through the years. And honestly, really, only a little bit of that work is related to what we have our formal education, formal training in. So we just got to talking about this and realized that both of us have things in our past that were just like, wow, I really did not know that about you. This is surprising. So Rebecca, why don't you just give us a quick rundown? You have a very eclectic job history, I know. Give us a rundown of the jobs that you have worked and maybe a little touch of kind of what your takeaway was from the jobs that you've worked in the past. Well, my very first job was a hostess at a local restaurant. I just took people to their seats, took their drink orders, ran the cash register, that's it. And I would say that my takeaway from that job was learning that people like to put lemon in their Coke. Oh. I didn't know that was a thing. Yeah. And also I learned how to carry four full coffee cups on saucers with two hands and six glasses of water. So that's my takeaway from that job. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That's an amazing skill to have. So then from there, I was an assistant, an administrative assistant at my dad's family tire business. My dad and aunt run Miller Tire Company where they specialize in selling tractors for those antique tractors for those who are restoring their tractors. And I worked there. And I would say that my biggest takeaway from that job, I had a lot of things I did there. It was mostly like administrative work and then also helping to package up the tires and ship them out by UPS and such, answering phones and all those kinds of things, emails. But my biggest takeaway from that job has to be learning exactly how smart my dad is. Oh, wow. That's really cool. I love that. He is one of the most brilliant men. He knows more about tires than I think any other soul on the earth. Because the things with tires and wheels and tubes is that they all have numbers. That's how they're labeled. That's their name. They're not giving cute names like I don't know, whatever. But so he has all these numbers in his head and somebody will call or email and say, I have this tractor and he knows exactly what tire number they need. I mean, it's just, I just was very impressed with my dad's business skills and his intellect and just everything that is stored up in his brain. It was really amazing. 
So I worked there throughout high school and on and off in college also. And also while I was in college over the summers, for three summers, I worked at a factory that manufactures wooden chairs. And there I worked in the sanding department. All right. So we'll talk more about that one later. (laughs) (laughs) After college, I was the administrative assistant to a community theater. I worked there part-time. While I was in school, I studied video production and theater. And when I graduated, I was searching for a job in video production. Did not find one. Found this job instead. And that is what I was doing while trying to find some kind of full-time work. Mm -hmm. And I learned at that job that I can't control my face very well. When I feel something, (laughs) it's really hard for me (laughs) to put up a front. You You have no poker face at all. <laughs> I really don't. My boss there, she was great, except she also was kind of a little on the micromanaging side. And I think she really picked up on some eye rolls that I was doing, <laughs> you know, maybe perhaps. Right. Yeah. You were, you were thought you were being subtle, but as it turns mm-hmm. out, you weren't being subtle. I don't think so. <laughs> I think she was happy with me, but I think she knew that I thought I wasn't. It wasn't a super good fit. Mm. One example was that she... Now, hey, anybody who works at a post office, come for me. Tell me I'm wrong. But she was insistent that I write the addresses on the envelopes before I weigh them for the postage because the weight of the ink could affect how much postage was required for the envelope. And I thought that was so stupid. (laughs) (laughs) And that elicited a few eye rolls. Yeah. So, hey, post office employees, you come tell me if I am completely off base that the weight of ink factors largely into your pricing. But anyway, so after I worked there, then I moved on to work for a travel agency that specializes in travel for missionaries. And from there, I was the lead spotlight operator at the largest professional Christian theater in the country, Sight and Sound Theaters. Man, you have done a little bit of everything. You really have. Yeah, it is a varied list. But I want to hear your jobs. What do you do? I was going to add, too, not only are you a very big, important part of the Sort of Awesome team, but you also have been blogging at SimplyRebecca.com for how many years now? Eight years, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds right. So that's a job in and of itself, too, for sure. Okay, well, my first non-babysitting job, because I had plenty of babysitting jobs when I was younger, my first, like, real job with a paycheck, I worked at a small retail boutique in my hometown. The boutique was called the Brown Paper Bag. And there I did, this was when I was in high school, I did everything from, like, basic stocking and pricing to delivering gifts to bridal showers. We had a really big bridal registry. And so I would deliver the gifts. I even built hutches, like those big cabinets for display. I would build hutches for candle displays. So did a little bit of everything. I'm so thankful for that job because I learned when I was a senior in high school how to gift wrap, like to Mm. do like really pretty and really nice looking gift wrap. And that is a skill that has served me so well for so many years. So I've always been very thankful for that job. From there, I went to college. In my first job in college, for a while, I worked at a small, locally owned pharmacy in the little small town where Kyle and I went to college. And again, I did deliveries there and also gift wrap and stocking and pricing. <laughs> Can sense a theme in my early jobs. Mm-hmm. I had a very specific but limited skill set. <laughs> <laughs> In those days, my big regret from that job, I learned that there's two 
much of a good thing. It's possible to have too much of a good thing. My boss who owned the pharmacy, we carried jelly bellies, jelly bellies, jelly beans in the store. Yeah. And he was like, when he was kind of walking me around the store and kind of introducing me to different things I'd be doing, he's like, oh, we have jelly bellies. Help yourself. You can eat as many as you want. I don't care. (laughs) Did he have to take that back? (laughs) I don't know if he ever knew how many I ate. I ate so many that I cannot stand the thought let alone the actual taste of eating a Jelly Belly to this day. And what that was, was like two favorite? decades ago. What I can't. No, flavor? I don't want to talk about any of them. I don't oh. have a favorite. <laughs> <laughs> They're all terrible. <laughs> I like the butter popcorn. Okay. Oh my gosh, on. especially that one. No, that was my favorite, but now I can't deal with it at all because I ate <laughs> so many of them. Okay, moving on. So after that job, I was a resident advisor, an RA in a dorm on our campus for a hot minute, like literally one semester. But then I worked for a long time in the student activities office of the university that Kyle and I went to. And I actually learned a lot about computer skills and like technology problem solving. This was in the very late 90s. And it was really the first time I'd ever worked on a computer a lot. And I really did kind of just have to teach myself a lot of computer skills. And again, things have changed, but just being able to be comfortable with technology is something that I have definitely taken forward from that job. So Kyla and I got married right before our senior year of college. And then we lived in married student housing for a year. But after that, when we were still kind of newlyweds, we were dorm directors. We were sort of the house parents over one of the dorms on campus. And I learned a lot about management in that job. I had to manage not only like the student complaints, the resident complaints and concerns, but I also had to manage for the first time. And I was like 22 or 23. I was very young. I had to manage a staff of resident advisors and night guards and like do all of their scheduling and kind of work out interpersonal problems with them. And So that was really, actually a really good job to have at that time. And what degree did you graduate with? Okay, so my degree is in English with an emphasis on secondary education. Okay. At that time also is when I started my master's work in library information sciences, which I never finished, nine hours short, never finished it. So later we moved away from Oklahoma, we moved to Texas, and before I started my first teaching job, I worked at Starbucks for a about five months, five or six months before I started teaching at Starbucks, which we'll talk a little bit more about here in a minute. But I did learn how to pull a perfect espresso shot, which is very important to me now. (laughs) I'm not sure I even know what that means. So (laughs) I didn't know that you pulled espresso. (laughs) From those big espresso bars, you know, like the big machines that they use like at Starbucks and other coffee houses. So you're like, I don't. Yeah, I don't know. That's not a world I live in. So let's move right along. (laughs) And then I taught high school English for three years. After that, I transitioned home. And soon after that began blogging. And I was a sort of casual author. I helped to co-write a book. And then here we are in our sort of awesome glory days. Okay, back it up. You can't just say, oh, I casually was an author. What is the name of your book? Where can people find it? It still lives on Amazon. It is called Spirit-Led Parenting from Fear to Freedom in Baby's First Year. And I co-wrote it with my friend, Laura Oyer. And yeah, it's about, it's basically just kind of a grace-filled, spirit-led approach to the first year of parenting that came out in 2012. And I have read it and it is phenomenal. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. Seems like a long, long, long time ago when I was (laughs) writing that book. And it kind of was actually. So 
Okay, let's dig in a little bit here because I have some questions about these jobs. Yes, me too. As we were talking about our past jobs, the one that stood out to me that I was like, I cannot make sense of this. I cannot make this fit is the travel agency. Now you mentioned as we were kind of going through our list that this was a travel agency for missionaries specifically, which then I was like, wait, what? I didn't even know that part. So let's do a little context background here. How did you get this job? And then kind of just like generally, how long did you work there? So this was my first full-time job after college. I was working part-time for the community theater that was obsessed with postage. <laughs> and in the, the community theater was in the same building as the travel agency. And so when I would walk out to my car, I saw a display for the travel agency in the lobby. And the travel agency is actually... It was called MTS Travel, which stands for Mennonite Travel Services. Okay. Because originally they used to be part of a Mennonite organization that sends people overseas to do missions. They're like main travel coordinators. So I was looking for a job in video production. I could not find one. I saw this display and I thought to myself, well, hey, I like to travel and I'm Mennonite. <laughs> so <laughs> maybe that could be my favor. That's like literally what was going on in my mind. I'm okay. Mennonite. Maybe they'll take me. <laughs> okay. So one day I went up the elevator to the travel agency and I talked to somebody there at the reception. I said, I just wanted to put my name out there and see if you guys happen to be hiring. And, you know, I'm looking for a job. Well, amazingly, they were in the process of hiring a new administrative assistant. And I was so new to the workforce that I didn't even know what administrative assistant really meant. <laughs> I was like, uh, is that like a secretary? Like, I, I didn't even know what that term meant. So I was interviewed, I was offered the job, and I ended up working there for just over two years. So my job there was to mostly to assist the travel agents. So I myself oh, was not okay. a travel agent. Okay, that makes sense. I need to know a little bit more about the missionary component. Sure. So different airlines will offer a discounted rate for missionaries. They have these special contracts that you can get if you're a missionary. So people would hire a travel agency because they would have access to those contracts. So they specialized in travel for missionaries, and most of the clientele were people that were going on long-term or short-term mission trips. There might be large groups that were traveling. They also had special tours that they would do, and people from the travel agency would be tour leaders, and they would be going off, like, giving tours of the Holy Land was a really common one when I was gotcha, working there. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, all right. So, I mean, you mentioned that you liked to travel, which you have done a lot of traveling, both kind of in the U.S. and internationally as well. So just being in the whole atmosphere of working at a travel agency, not necessarily doing the direct booking of people's stuff, but working in that travel rich environment. Did that make you want to travel more? Or did you find like over time that kind of like you're like, I actually don't want to mess with any of these headaches after all? Oh, no, I definitely wanted to travel had the travel bug. I was engaged when I started working there. And I ended up using the travel agency to help book my honeymoon. And Nate and I chose to go to Costa Rica on our honeymoon. So that That's was right. fun. Yes. Uh -huh. And then 
while I was there, I won two free airline tickets from Lufthansa Airlines during our Christmas party. And so Nate and I got to go to Spain and France for a week. Oh my gosh, I didn't even know about that trip. That's amazing. It was amazing. It was completely awesome. The thing, though, that's (laughs) about this job that was so interesting to me as I look back is what I actually did on a daily basis there was not very life-giving to me. Mm. And I'm afraid I like I'm ashamed to admit it but I actually was maybe a bit embarrassed at my job Mm. because when I would tell people that I worked at a travel agency like you they would always assume oh so you're a travel agent and I had a very low entry-level job when I first started there gotcha so my job there was to like take care of the mail basically I was the mail girl I helped fill the vending machines. I mean, it was like real low stuff. I would relieve the main receptionist and answer the phones. <laughs> One of the things I did there is I did some research. I like, this is such an eye roll. This is very embarrassing that I did this. But I did some research to see if we should switch from selling Coke to selling Pepsi products. And I did this like elaborate survey and I was asking people how many cans of pop sorry soda whatever how many cans of pop (laughs) do you normally drink would that change if we switch the brand which flavors would you like to see I think people must have just been like oh this girl like who cares I am battling so many other things I'm not filling out like your dumb survey like why are you asking me about pop oh my goodness I was so passionate about every aspect can I just interject and testify that if there was a choice given between diet coke and possibly switching to diet pepsi I would be like I'm sorry I have to walk out of this job now (laughs) I have very big feelings about Diet Coke and how Diet Pepsi is not an acceptable alternative. (laughs) Okay, well, maybe it's not as embarrassing as I think it was. But after I had that entry-level job, I did then move up to a higher level where I was more of an assistant to several travel agents. And I was responsible for packaging up their tickets. We had a machine there that printed out invoices and printed out tickets. And then we had to physically mail them, send them to all of the clients. And I was a direct admin for, I think, at the most, at one point, it might have been 14 to 18 different travel agents. And that was actually quite a bit. That was a lot. It was very detail-oriented work. Every agent that I worked for had specific ways that they wanted everything packaged from, like, which inserts would go in, how they wanted things folded, and how they wanted it sent either by the post office or FedEx. It was extremely detail-oriented. And I really did learn a lot there about how to work just around other people, like in a professional atmosphere. And it was a good learning experience, but it was, uh, it kind of sucked the life out of me somewhat because I'm a very creative-minded person. And this was very much like a black and white type of job, which is maybe why I went a bit nuts over the pop survey. (laughs) (laughs) That explains it for sure. Well, I wanted to talk about that because you mentioned this was a kind of a soul-sucking job. It just was not a creative fit for you. It wasn't a fulfilling fit for you because you have a degree in theater, right? 
Right? Yes. So my degree is actually communications with an emphasis in video production and a secondary emphasis or a second emphasis also in theater. Plus, I have a theater minor. Wow. Okay. So I can totally see then how your next job, I'm assuming it came along next when you were working at Sight and Sound, right? Yes, that came next. I can see how that would have been in a lot of ways, a huge like relief and also really exciting to get back into that. I mean, I know you said you were working at the community theater part-time at the time, but I mean, to be able to move to, you weren't doing really any theater oriented work, it sounds like. No, there was no creativity in my mailings there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so now then you get a job, which I want to hear a little bit about that, how you got the job, but you're at Sight and Sound, which if you all are not familiar with Sight and Sound theaters, I haven't been to the one that Rebecca worked at, but I have been to one in Branson. And my parents took my siblings and our spouses and kids several years back to, I think it's called the Miracle of Christmas, the basically yes. the Mary and Joseph story. It is not like you just go to the theater and see a show. It is a whole experience. Like there are live animals. There are like multiple stages going with different parts of the story. And it is a whole thing. The animals, especially, I remember, I don't know if it's because we only had the girls at the time and they were just like bananas over camels coming down the, you know, sort of aisles of the theater and just it's a whole thing. It really is. <laughs> I, just, I was just like going back there in my mind, like, wow. And so you actually worked there. You were in production at Sight and Sound Theater. So tell us the story. Like, how did you get the job there? I know that you were running those spotlights. And I just want to hear the whole thing of it. What did it look like? Okay. I, I'm sorry. I'm getting like emotional listening to you talk about this. Oh, Sight and Sound is one of the coolest things that I have done in my life. If you have an opportunity, Awesomes, to see a sight and sound show, you really must go. It's indescribable. It really mm -hmm. is a phenomenal experience. And I worked behind the scenes, but then every time that I had the opportunity to sit in the audience and watch the show, I was always just blown away and so incredibly grateful to be part of something so magical. Yes. It's like how people feel about Disney, that you go there and yes. it's just so much fun. And it's like, wow, this is awesome. Like, that's how I feel about Sight and Sound. And it's just, it really is just one of the best jobs I've ever had. So, but to back up, like, I'm like crying. I know. Yes. I'm sorry. I didn't, me. No, I didn't okay. mean to. <laughs> I didn't mean to touch on some emotional No, it just here, so. really is just something I'm incredibly proud and grateful to have been part of. So when I was working at the travel agency, I was having just a very difficult time feeling like the creative side of myself was dying away. So I applied for a position at Sight & Sound. I think I sent just like a general application in. I ended up getting called in for an interview, and it was for their call center, which would be a fantastic job. It's customer service answering questions, answering the phones, taking orders. And as soon as I walked into the call center part, like my heart just dropped. I was like, mm. oh, this is not a step up from what I'm doing. This is right. not at all. And I ended up purely faking it through the rest of the interview. Why did I not say, you know what? No, this isn't going to be a good fit. But I completely, I just completely faked it. I'm like, yeah, I can do this. Sure. No, no, I could not. They offered me the position and I no joke. Well, this won't be surprising to anybody with how emotional I am. I straight up cried on the phone saying, I'm sorry, I really want to work for you, but I can't do this job. And I'm like <laughs> crying, denying the job. Oh, it was really hard because I saw working at Sight and Sound as just like the perfect escape from where I was. Sure. Yes. And 
to be offered something that I just knew wouldn't be good for me, it was really hard for me to turn that down. So I ended up sending a thank you note in, though, because I felt so strongly that I really did want to work there. So I sent a thank you note in and said something like, you know, if you have other positions ever opened up, I hope you consider me. Well, my boss then, my future boss, was for the lighting department, was looking for positions, and he was going through those past resumes. You hear people say, oh, we'll keep your resume on file, and we'll contact you. And then that does not happen, right? Like, that never happens. It legit happened to me. He found my resume with the thank you note, and that stood out to him. And he called me in for an interview. He said that he looked through my previous work history and my theater background, and he's like, well, no wonder she turned down a job with the call center. Like, this isn't what she's made for. So he called me in. I was like, okay, I know nothing about lighting. So... I don't know how to run a light board. I don't know how to do anything backstage with theater. I'm like an onstage theater person. Mm -hmm. So this is like crazy. But I saw it as a good step into the company. I saw it just a great opportunity. And they offered on-job training. He said to me, my boss at the time was like, you know, you don't have the background and the skills for this job, but you have the personality that I want. Oh, I love that. (laughs) So we're going to hire you. It was wonderful. It was amazing. So I started working there and I was just a general spotlight operator. And then I was there for less than six months and I was highly encouraged to apply for the lead spotlight operator position. As a spotlight operator, as sight and sound shows, there are a series of connected like sidewalks up above the audience. Mm -hmm. The catwalks is what they were called. And there were several spotlights up there. I think there was like maybe 10 or so. And then there would be like maybe eight people, six to eight people who would go from spotlight to spotlight and they would have the job of highlighting the person on the stage who is doing the talking. Because Mm -hmm. when you are at a show at Sight and Sound, there are so many people on stage. Yes. This is a 2000 seat auditorium. It is a 300 foot stage that wraps around the audience on three sides. We're talking bigger than Broadway stage here, Mm -hmm. folks. Oh, yeah. There are live animals. It's original musical productions. There are people that are flying, actors and actresses that are flying above the stage and above the audience. And they have like special lights that make it look like it's a starry night above your heads. I mean, it's just, it is huge. And for the audience to know who they're supposed to be focusing on in any given scene, that spotlight directs them. So when Mm. you're sitting in the audience, you probably have no idea that you're actually seeing a spotlight on somebody, but you just know, oh, this person is standing out. Right. Yeah. So that was our job is to make the appropriate people stand out and direct the audience where they should be directing their eyes. So as the lead spotlight operator, I was in charge of calling people up. So we would have several spotlights that would come up all at once, and then they would go out all at once. I would troubleshoot problems if a spotlight operator was running behind or having an issue. I would correct people to make sure that they were following their spot cues accordingly to the creative direction of the show. And then a whole lot of stuff like behind the scenes, like twice a week, we would actually count all of the lights to be sure that they were working after the theater was closed. Yeah, it was a huge, huge job for an absolutely amazing organization to be part of. So just to clarify, you were physically up in the catwalks over the audience and stage 
for most of your work up there. Yeah, probably 50 to 60 feet above the audience. Oh my gosh. So you're not afraid of heights, I guess? No, no. Okay. And I was working there nine months pregnant. That's where I was before I had Grace. <laughs> oh my gosh. That feels very stressful to me, but I can see <laughs> as you're talking about it, it wasn't stressful to you. It was fun. No, it was fun. And we had all kinds of rules about not being able to have, th- like everything had to be tied off. So like if you were to drop something, it could literally drop onto somebody's head below you. And when I was first pregnant and experiencing morning sickness, I was terrified. I was like, I can't like throw up up in the catwalks. What am I going to do? I tied off a barf bag into the catwalks. I had this like bag there that praise the Lord. I never had to use it. (laughs) But we wore... I was going to say the things that are just going on behind the scenes that if you're in the audience, you never even know about. (laughs) Well, and I even stopped work there two weeks before my due date because I was so paranoid about going into labor. And, you know, when you suspect that labor is happening, usually you can like, you know, you might want to go to the bathroom or sit down or like walk around. Well, I didn't have the freedom to do any of that. I had to be like on my job and I could not leave my spotlight. So I actually chose to leave work a little early because I didn't want labor to start while I was at work. Totally. Yes, that makes sense. So I'm guessing then that you guys would use some kind of communication system. Like you said, you'd call people up to make sure that their spots were on the right people. I'm guessing you had headsets on to read all the communication. So tell us a little bit about that. Did you guys only talk like, was it only all business, all technical talk? Or were there ever, ever like little side conversations as you, you know, backstage and up above the action of shows that you've seen hundreds of times by the time? You know. Once we were comfortable with the show and we all had all of our cues memorized, it was probably like 95% side conversation. Like it was <laughs> the most intimate work atmosphere that I can imagine because you basically are like locked in with the same people talking in your ear all day. Regardless of whether or not you particularly like all your coworkers or you get along or you enjoy the things that they have to say, you're there listening and participating. Looking back, it must have been like an introvert's nightmare <laughs> to have to be on headset all the time. But yeah, we talked about the movie that we just saw, what we're eating for supper, wedding planning. I mean, just like a million, a million different things. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Did anything ever like really crazy happen backstage or behind the scenes that you're like, oh my gosh, if the audience only knew? Well, when there was something really, really major that went wrong, we would actually hold the show where the lights would come Uh, up and we'd have to stop the show. And that was always unfortunate when that would happen. But one time when there was a hold in the show, there's this lift that actually can like in the middle of the stage floor that can... Well, it's huge and it like can lift up set pieces and then take them back down to the basement for storage. Mm-hmm. And the lift fell with set <gasps> pieces and people on it. Oh and my that gosh. Was, that was pretty terrifying. Yeah. Um, one time there was a small fire in one of the electrical pockets mm. and they didn't hold the show. It was just a few minutes before intermission. And our lighting board operator was like frantic, like trying to like turn off all these lights and stuff. And that was. <sighs> That was pretty crazy. But I mean, mostly you just have no idea what is happening behind stage and in the catwalks. Like people like running around. I mean, I had cues where I had to run from one side of the catwalks all the way to the other. And there's just all these people up there. 
so many more behind stage, pushing set pieces, plugging in big cables, you know, guiding animals on and off, helping actors and actresses do all the dressings. I mean, I'm not even getting into like all of the planning and preparation and all of the management and all that side. I mean, just from the lighting department's perspective, it just, it's a crew, man. It is just crazy. Oh, and one time an angel fell from the ceiling. That was pretty traumatic. But the audience knew about that because she, like, fell into the audience. So. Oh, wow. That was a bad day. Yeah. (laughs) She didn't get hurt. She didn't fall that hard. But, like, she had, like, this harness on. (laughs) She didn't fall that hard. That's fine. It was scary, though. Oh, my goodness. Okay. None of my past jobs are really quite as fascinating (laughs) as being suspended in the air on catwalks above the theater, but I was wondering, I mean, is there anything from my resume that you want to pick out and talk about? Yes, yes, most definitely. Okay, you worked at Starbucks. We need to know everything. I feel like Starbucks is, I like, feel like there's like a fandom for Starbucks. Definitely. So yeah. I want to know, did you drink coffee at all before you worked at Starbucks? I did, except I drank really crappy, just, you know, like grocery store pre-ground coffee, which I know a lot of you drink and that's fine. But I just drank regular. I never drank coffee until Kyle and I got married. And then I started drinking coffee because he drank it. But I grew up with my mom being a coffee drinker and she never really drank anything fancy. So I did drink coffee. But I feel like when I started working at Starbucks is when I learned how to really drink coffee in a serious way. Well, yeah. So are you like a coffee snob now? I mean, you Uh, kind of implied that. 100%. 100% snobbish about my coffee. And I truly either credit or blame. You could look at it either way. My stint at Starbucks for that. I'm very snobbish about coffee now. And was it hard to learn how to make all those drinks? There's like a thousand different possibilities. It was very hard training for Starbucks. First of all, I still have a great fondness and affection for Starbucks. I think they're a fantastic company to work for. They have amazing corporate culture. They really believe in what they're doing. I think they really truly care, I mean, as much as, you know, corporations do, about their customers. And so, having said that, to work in a standalone, like an actual Starbucks, I'm not talking about like your Starbucks at the airport or at Target or whatever, like a true Starbucks store, there is a lot of training on the front end where you go in and you have to go to coffee tastings and you learn how to pair certain Yeah. They like show you, like in those days they used French presses. I don't know if they still do, if they use some other kind of like, I don't know, there's lots of fancy coffee paraphernalia available now, but they prepare different French presses of their brews and we would taste them and talk about the differences in tasting. We learned how to pair certain coffees with certain desserts and other things that were served in Starbucks at the time. And then also we had manuals that we had to like study. They're actually, they were set up in module form where you would like study the history of the coffee beans and like the history of this kind of drink and there was a lot of the book learning history of coffee beans oh my gosh yes a hundred percent that was the least of what we were learning we learned so much you learn so much about coffee history and coffee preparation they are very serious about the coffee that they serve in their real stores which is why when i say that one of my biggest takeaways was learning how to pull a perfect shot of espresso it took me a long time to learn to pull perfect shots they are very very meticulous because they want you to have a great experience at starbucks no matter if you're at one in oklahoma city or in like zimbabwe like they are very serious about the experience of coffee that you have there okay so what makes an unperfect pull of espresso 
it had to do with the timing that the water would come through the espresso machine again at the espresso bar. There's like a countdown clock with a number of seconds on it and I can't remember the details of it now. And then also like the color and consistency of the espresso once it poured from the machine. And I was always the junior person, but there's always a manager at the bar as well. And if you didn't pull a perfect shot or a good shot, you had to pour it out and get another, start another shot going. Because they want it to taste the same, like the same intensity of flavor yes. every time? Yes. Okay. Yes. Wow. So it is very meticulous and very, that part was very stressful for me because I'm not good with meticulousness, but I love coffee and I wanted to learn how to do it well. That left such a lasting impression on me that I still to this day have like anxiety dreams that I'm behind the espresso bar and I've got a line waiting and I'm trying to pull shots. And yeah, I still have dreams about that. Okay, so when I was thinking about you working there and I was thinking about, so what would stress me out about working at Starbucks? I thought having to spell people's names on their cups. I had no idea. <laughs> that was truly. Pulling yeah, up not, espresso shots. That's why you get misspelled names. Your barista doesn't actually care how your name is spelled. They're worried about making sure you have a great experience at the coffee bar. <laughs> That's so fascinating. Okay, so talk to me about ordering. Are there things that we can do to help our barista? Like, if we say what we want in a certain order, does that make a difference for you? Or do baristas really care if we say that we want a large instead of saying that we want a venti? No. I mean, I don't think so. And no, it doesn't actually matter what order you say it in. There is a standardized order of how they kind of categorize the drink. And they will take what you tell them whether you use their lingo or not, and put it into the Starbucks methodology of drink preparation, and they will take care of all of it. So really, I think that what Starbucks wants you to do is be able to feel like you can walk in and just say what you want and not feel like you have to show off your fancy coffee knowledge or be intimidated by all the drink choices. Okay, I am intimidated. Like, I feel like I'm going to say the wrong thing. See, and I feel like if you say the wrong thing, they're not going to care. A hundred percent, they will not care. But also, they want you to have the kind of experience where you can even go in and like you would ask like the waitress, like, what's good tonight? Like, what are the specials? You could ask a barista, like, I'm in the mood for something you know, cozy, but I don't like a dark brew, but I like this and just kind of explain what you want. And they can be like, oh, let's do a, you know, and then just come up with an idea for you again, because they've had a lot of training. All of those Starbucks baristas have had a lot of training in preparing espresso based drinks. And so they can help you if you don't even know what you want. And they want to help. Yeah, I think that sounds like maybe now, a little bit annoying. Like, okay, just tell me what you want. Like, it's not up to me to decide what you're going to order. Or I'm going to have you order the most expensive thing. <laughs> <laughs> that might happen. But I think if it's like a 6 a.m. rush, if there's a line and you're dilly-dallying at the front of the line, they may not be as indulgent. But if there's not very many people in the store and you're just kind of wander up and you're like, I don't know what I'm in the mood for. Can you help me? Yes, they'll be happy to help you. I can see you being really good at that, but I don't know if, I, I don't know. I have my doubts that like every barista is like, yes, I would love to help you through this decision fatigue that you're experiencing today. <laughs> I cannot speak on behalf of this entire company that I worked for that was 16 years ago. <laughs> but I okay. will say the mood at the time when I worked there was very much like, we love coffee and we want to help you love coffee. So yeah. Okay, so what did you love? What was your favorite Starbucks drink? I mean, I am very simple in that I genuinely love 
just whatever brew, whatever the ground brew is for the day, whatever the dark roast is. I love that. But of the espresso drinks, I mean, I love just simple like a cinnamon dolce latte is one of my favorites. I really like that one. A lot of the drinks that are on the menu now, and I mean a lot, we did not have in 2001. We could play around with drinks too. And Starbucks has always encouraged innovation with their baristas for coming up with new drink ideas and feedback on what customers like and don't like. But we did not have nearly the selection of syrups and the frappe Frappuccinos you could get. There was like four frappuccinos that you could get at the time when I worked there. So Well, and I feel like there's all these like secret menu items that are going around now. So did you have any of that or... No. Secret menu has become a thing, I think, in the past few years. And it's really kind of like more because of the way the internet is now. Obviously, we had the internet in 2001, but people just hadn't thought of you know, coming up with the secret menu suggestions and putting those online. AJ, my 10-year-old daughter, is obsessed with the secret menu stuff and always is begging me to take her to a Starbucks to ask for a new secret menu item that she's come across. I've never done it, but she's really... I have done it once, actually. I was going to ask them for an orange creamsicle frappuccino. They did not have orange syrup because apparently orange is a seasonal syrup and they didn't have it in when we went in, but they did make her like a peach dream frappuccino just for fun. So yeah, it turned out really good. So from Starbucks, you went to your teaching job, That's right? right. Yes, that is right. Yes. Yeah. So I have a degree in English with an emphasis in secondary education. And I kind of, the way I found myself in that line of both education for college and then what I was going to do as a career is when I was a senior in high school, I got a full ride scholarship in English at the university that I went to. And so when that happened, I was kind of like, I guess I'll be an English major. (laughs) I mean, it didn't just fall out of the sky. I applied for the scholarship and went through the interview process and whatever, but I got the scholarship and decided, okay, English major it is, and I might as well teach if I'm going to have a degree in English. And You know, going back to the time I was little, my sister and I used to play school all the time. My sister, who's been on the show several times, is a teacher still, is a teaching in the classroom teacher. So it's kind of always been in the back of my mind. But I taught at Burleson High School, which is outside of Fort Worth, Texas, home of Kelly Clarkson. And I taught junior and senior English, English three and four. Okay, this seems so random. But my first question, as a high school teacher, did you feel the pressure to keep up with fashion trends? Because you were like around <laughs> like all these young people who are judging you I know. every moment of the day. I honestly did not. I personally went the opposite direction because I was very young. I was in my early to mid-20s. I think I was like 24, 25, 26 when I was teaching. And I wanted to be seen as professional. I did not want to be seen as trendy. I wanted to look like a grown-up and feel like a grown-up, like I could be in charge of a class of, I mean, they were not that much younger than me, especially when I first started teaching. Those seniors were not that much younger than me. And so it was very important to me. So I like went the total opposite direction and only wore like probably what they would consider like old lady clothes. (laughs) I knew what the fashion trends were for sure, but I didn't wear them in the classroom. No way. Do you think that you were able to command the respect that you were looking for? Or was that difficult? I think across the board I did, except one year I had one class. I won't go into explaining how this happened, but I ended up with a class of 33 seniors and 31 of those 33 seniors were boys. Oh. And that was a very hard year, I will say. On the first day of school, when I was driving home, after I had that class, I cried on the way home. By the end of the year, I actually cried in class because of that class. They were difficult. 
it was a difficult class dynamic. It was really hard. That's the only class when I look back at my teaching career and just go like, I don't even know. I don't know if anybody learned anything in there. It was a tough one. Do you think anybody had a crush on you? (laughs) (laughs) Kyle insists that that is a foregone conclusion. He's like, yes, of course they did. I don't know. No one ever was inappropriate if there was any little crush situation. Nobody was ever inappropriate about it. Praise the Lord. That'd be awkward. Okay. (laughs) Switching gears here just a little bit. Also illegal, but let's move on. Yes. So every single Christmas, I see people asking again and again and again for teacher gift Mm. recommendations. Now, set the story straight. What should people give? What should they avoid? Is it expected? What about at the high school level and the middle school level? Mm. What do you do? Okay, I think at the high school level, it is not expected. I don't think it's expected at the middle school level because there's so many teachers. And I learned that last year, Daisy was like determined, she was in sixth grade last year, that all eight of her teachers would get a present. And I was like, holy Moses, that's not a small amount of money. But at the high school level, and especially since I taught juniors and seniors, I did not expect anything. A card, I mean, I'm a words of affirmation person, so I'd have students who would write me letters or give me cards either at Christmas or at the end of the year. I have saved those cards and personal notes from my students meant the world to me. So that was really good. I mean, I think with teacher gifts, whatever the level is, I don't think you can go wrong with cash in the form of like gift cards. Anything that's consumable, like that you're gonna use up and is not just going to be clutter. I will say one exception to that, this may just have been a personal thing, but one year one of my students at Christmas gave me a really beautiful blown glass Christmas ornament. It was really pretty and I've saved it to this day. It was really gorgeous, really thoughtful. But I think for the most part, trinkety things, they just kind of pile up and catch dust over the years. And unless it's something that has a direct connection to like what you teach or maybe to a private joke in class or whatever the thing may be, if there's like some kind of meaning behind it, I think a teacher would be more likely to keep it. But mostly gift cards, any kind of like a luxury experience that you could give a teacher, I think is always appreciated. Yeah, something that they're not going to have to be like, okay, here's one more thing I've got to move around and keep up with in my classroom. Unless, again, if it's like a really nice pen or something that they would actually use, practically speaking, I think that would be good. But otherwise, I know gift cards don't feel personal, but a gift card with a really thoughtful, heartfelt note from either your student or yourself as a parent, I don't think you can ever go wrong with that. Did you always know that you were going to stop teaching after you had kids? Was that part of your life plan? Yes, kind of. I did think from the time I was in high school, my mother was a stay-at-home mom for the most part, although she's an RN, a registered nurse. She mostly was at home with us, and I enjoyed the experience of having a stay-at-home mom. So I think I always thought that I probably would. I will say that when I got pregnant with Daisy, we had actually, we moved communities. We moved down further south in Texas at the time, and I did look for a full-time teaching job because I was like, I really actually love this, and I kind of want to keep going, and it just never worked out lots of interviews, never got hired. So I was like, okay, well, I guess I won't keep pursuing this then. After I had Daisy, and certainly now that I have four kids, I can see how it depends on the subject matter. But with English, there's a lot of grading of essays, so much writing and so much grading. And so I think that would be very difficult. Certainly lots of teachers do it. And I had teachers in high school who were fantastic teachers who were also moms, busy, active moms who balanced it all. I think it would be hard to teach writing and also have any time to yourself. Also, I'm just a slow person. I'm slow at grading because I really read and really think about things. So it would be hard to be back in the classroom, I think. Well, and what's that one confession that you made, though? 
that book that you didn't read <laughs> <laughs> the hobbit i did not read i did and i read the you, how many years did you teach that book <laughs> just, you never read it i, I read it i just taught it two years <laughs> oh, okay just twice okay <laughs> Yes. Oh, that's yes, great. Yes. I love it. Yeah. So it's interesting as we think about this, like we went to school. Now, I think that when you and I, and we're, you know, we have some age difference, but definitely as we were coming up, it was like, you have to go to college. But, you know, as I look around now that I'm adult and I look around at my peers, I know plenty of people who either didn't go to college, just went straight into a career and have thriving, amazing careers now without having gone to college or, you know, are like, well, I do have a degree, but it's actually in finance, although now I run my own catering company or whatever. <laughs> right. So it's interesting as we think about these jobs and our college degrees. And Rebecca, I always am so fascinated that you have an actual degree in like theater stuff. And I can see ways that you use that in podcasting and lots of things that you've done with your blog. But what do you think about when you think about your college degree? Well, when I was working at Sight & Sound, actually, there was somebody who was on the staff with me who would ask me kind of on a regular basis, so what are your plans? Like, when are you going to start using your degree? And I always was so frustrated because I was like, no, but, 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 but I am. Like, I work at a theater. <laughs> yes. Like, this isn't the career path exactly that maybe I hoped for. Being on stage would have been much more fun. But goodness sakes, like, just lay off, give me a break. I'm working at an actual theater. So I had some insecurities about that. But then ultimately, when I had Grace, I made the decision I would rather have kids than try to audition and do more in the realm of what my degree was. And like I said, I tried to find a video production job and it just wasn't happening for me in my area. But now, yeah, now I can see how it certainly has helped. I think that all of my theater background is helping for this podcast. I mean, mm -hmm. I know I can't always like hold myself together and sometimes talking is hard. But I, <laughs> <laughs> but I hope that some of what I learned in school is aiding me here and has on my blog throughout the years. I mean, Part of my degree, I had this class on web development where I built a blog. I built a website from HTML from scratch. And so that certainly has aided in what I've done. Just even a year ago or so, I emailed my communications professor and I said, hey, I just want to let you know what I'm doing. Like, I feel like I'm a success story now. And that feels really good. Yes. It feels good. Now, see, what we are doing, though, wasn't even something that I could have taken a class in. Totally right. Yeah. So although my degree is communications, I feel like that encompasses all of this, but I did not have specific podcast training. I didn't have specific blog training, but goodness sakes, like that just wasn't, that did not exist. So I feel like I'm using it to the best that I could while also being a stay-at-home mom. Sure. And I think it's one of those things too, where you have things that you just generally picked up along the way, maybe not necessarily the specific skill set, but just more like, I don't know, workflow things or like networking things that 
come into play that you're like, I guess I really did kind of learn that back in those days. So I mean, I feel the same way with my degree in English. It totally served me well when I was teaching, especially with the emphasis in secondary education. I took some amazing education courses when I was an undergrad. The school that I went to is very well known in our state as being a teacher's college. That was how it was formed and is still so strong in that department. And I feel like I loved my English classes because I could talk about reading and writing for days and never Never get bored with that. But the education classes were really helpful and have served me well in parenting and, and other things. And I will say that the very first day that I was student teaching, I had a class of seventh graders in front of me. We were discussing language arts and I gave my like little presentation and the mentor teacher who I very much looked up to and respect was an amazing veteran teacher was said, I've had a lot of teachers come through my classroom as student teachers and it's clear as I watch you do this that you were really made to do this. And that meant so much to me. And I do, I miss the actual teaching part of teaching. There are a lot of things that go along with teaching that don't have anything to do with teacher and student interaction and the actual process of learning. But that moment when you can really share an enthusiasm for knowledge and you see people pick up on it and pick it up and want to take it forward into their own lives, incorporate it into their own lives is an amazing feeling. And I miss that very much. So would you say that's what you miss the most about being in the traditional workforce? Yes, definitely. I definitely do. What about you? Do you have things that you miss from those days? Well, I miss having a job that people ask me about and Mm. that they can understand. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) I distinctly remember after choosing to stay home with Grace after she was born, I was at a dinner party, and everybody kind of took a turn around the table talking about their jobs and what they were doing, and I just kind of got passed over and didn't get that turn, like as a stay-at-home mom. And I was like, yeah, like, I have things I do. (laughs) I have something (laughs) to say. And now, even more so, I feel like, yes, I do have this other job that I do. I am still a professional. People's eyes, they like glaze over. They're like, what? (laughs) What's a podcast? A blog? I don't get it. And so then I also like start to explain. And then like my husband will say to me later, yeah, their eyes just completely like (laughs) glazed over. They checked out. They checked out. They totally checked out. Okay. So I miss that. Yes, definitely. And I totally know that feeling well. I understand it. Let me ask you this really quickly. If you could go back to any job that you had in the past and work it for one year, what would you pick? I would pick sight and sound, except it's an insane schedule as a mom. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I could pick it and have three kids. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I don't know how that would work, but I would pick sight and sound. And I should say about sight and sound, we never said, so you said you saw a show in Branson, Missouri. Yeah. The other theater is located in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Yes. Because people are going to want to go and see one of their shows. They are actually pretty much identical theaters, and they do the same shows just at different times. So you can go to either one, and you'll see something amazing. So good. So good. Well, okay, what job would you pick? Yeah. If I had to go back, I would – I know this sounds so crazy, but I'd probably work at Starbucks again. Because you don't have to do any grading. I love coffee, and I miss the community part of being in the workforce, too. Just having coworkers and just having regulars and stuff was really fun. So – Okay, we have just talked your ears off today about all things past jobs and what we've learned and if we're even using those degrees that we have. So we would love to hear from you all about what you have on your resume and some of your standout past jobs. We can't wait to hear what you have to share with us. Rebecca, remind people where we can find you all around the web for any follow-up discussion. 
Well, you can find me on my blog, simplyrebecca.com. That's where I talk about parenting, natural living, and ways to save money. And then you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Simply Rebecca. Okay. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg. You can find the show over on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. We would love to hear any thoughts that you have for us. We always love to hear from the awesome. So thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll see you all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffert, and Laura Tremaine. Visit us on the web at SortaAwesomeShow.com, where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at PragerMusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome.